You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. This is Michael Reed Trice, professor and director at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. I'm speaking today with the Reverend Bill Curlin Hackett, who has directed the Interfaith Task Force on Homelessness since 2004. Its focus is to create the political will to end homelessness, largely via advocacy, education, capacity building, within faith organizations, and with regard to direct service. And today, we're talking about the key virtues that frame so much of this work, including charity, compassion, and justice, and how sometimes we become obstructionist to our own desire to do good in the world, in our own communities, or even in our own lives. So Bill's going to walk us through that, and he's going to walk us through a text, The Stones Would Shout, Homelessness and Place and Faith, which he has written and which can be a guide to you and to local communities. As he notes, whether you're an atheist, agnostic, or a person of faith, it doesn't matter. We share values of wanting to meet human needs. So... I encourage you to take a listen. You've been directing the Interfaith Task Force on Homelessness since 2004. Yes, that's true. For those who aren't familiar about your work in this municipality in the Seattle land area, the Pacific Northwest, and also how there are corollaries in other urban contexts around the country that look somewhat like your work, although different, unique. What is it that the Interfaith Task Force has done and what's it doing now? Well, I stumbled into the Interfaith Task Force on Homelessness, an annual, well, annual, it was the only time it was held, event at St. Mark's Cathedral, building the will to end homelessness, building the political will to end homelessness. 2001, one of the Things that event produced were ideas for the future, action steps, action plan. And the first one was to form an interfaith task force on homelessness, which was curious because it was made up of politicians and lay people of congregations and people not attached to any congregations. So it was clear that the faith community itself needed to produce a moving part that was evident publicly. And we met later that year, end of the year, David Bloom, Reverend David Bloom of the church council prior, and now became the first program coordinator under St. Mark's Cathedral. And the goal was to create the political will to end homelessness. And the two tasks were education and advocacy. That's how we started. 2004, David left, I became the director. That was our main charter. Is that still your charter, education and advocacy in these faith communities? Uh, We've widened our charter. In about 2010 into 2011, we realized that while many affiliated with our task force did direct service, there was a gap in services that were not being provided, and we entered that gap by beginning vehicle residency in Seattle. Could you say more about what that is in terms of vehicle residency? Um, Sure. It's doing outreach to people who live in their vehicles, and it started largely because Seattle passed a law that came to be known as the Scoff Law Ordinance. And what that did was if you had four or more tickets, you could be booted and impounded. Now, the law made no provision for people living in vehicles. It still has no provision, even though we've sought to get it changed. To this day. To this day. 
So we started just doing outreach to them and helping them mitigate any chance that they might get booted. That meant helping them with their tickets and other things like that. Mayor McGinn at the time told his staff to work with us. And so we formed a relationship with parking enforcement and the court. And they got to use their, as I call it, official wiggle room to not always act urgently and bring more harm. And they've done that ever since with us. So that gave us time to do outreach and to help people not have their vehicle impounded, which is their home. You know, Bill, whenever we speak to your point about human beings having the right, as I interpreted what you just said, to have a home, to have a dwelling of of their own. Whenever we speak about this and whenever uh, I hear you or others talk about having faith communities be, as you mentioned earlier, be publicly present, what's the difference between a faith community being sinewed together in this area to be present in this way and just any particular other nonprofit that doesn't have any specific claim to one faith over another? Well, I I think I often use a story that came up when I went to a Lutheran Synod Council and was asking for them to start a church and society committee. And one of the things after the presentation they asked me was, and of course we were interfaith task force at the time, was how do you proclaim then Jesus as your Lord and Savior in this work? And I said, well, we go out and we serve the people who are being harmed and in need. And afterward, we might sit around and talk about our faith that brought us there, or we don't. We know that we came there when we gather as people of faith. But even with that said, one of the prominent people in my life since I've been doing this who helped me form the outreach to vehicles is an atheist. So I say your cosmic love of people is what joins you and me together. And we joke about it. And it's very little, it's not very different. And she respects my faith and I respect her place in the world as a atheist. And maybe you know, in this area and in other parts of the country, that suffices perfectly well because the values that inform a response, as you mentioned, to the scoff law ordinance and to the displacement, immediate displacement of people from their homes, which are also their cars or their other vehicles where they live, that those are shared values. And yet also, you know, your book, uh, The Stones Would Shout, is a direct reference to a a deep-seated scriptural claim about how injustice itself needs to be named and responded to in the world. Could you say more about now that book and how it fits into the work of the task force and your work? Well, when I was first thinking about putting this together, it came at the urging of that colleague, David Bloom, who was teaching for Antioch and other places. And I would come in and I would present what shows up in our book as a kind of a curriculum on how to get involved if you're in a faith community or or any other setting. How do you recognize the homeless? How do you begin to respond? What are the appropriate ways to do this? But it also came in part because I was hearing from so many colleagues practicing justice, things like you have to get beyond charity to justice. That was a very big mantra. It's still true. Others would say, oh, no, 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 we can't waste our time on going to political settings. We have to help the people who need food tonight. So there became this chasm between our team. People on the side of wanting to help had a chasm about how to do it. And we had the benefit of working beside 
Reverend Craig Rennebaum, who formed the Seattle chaplaincy, mental health chaplaincy, who started the companionship training. But one of the core issues and practices there was listening or companionship or compassion. So it made sense to me that these are all gifts that we have. You, Michael, might do much better at a soup kitchen than I ever would. And I might do much better at city council than you ever would. And yet we ought not be enemies. We're on the same team. And what we learned was that when someone brings compassion to that part of the gift that they're building and doing, the person at the soup kitchen doesn't necessarily burn out so much. They come out and sit and listen to people who come eat. And when the one in the political sector has compassion about what they're doing, they actually listen to some of the politicians and come up with a remedy that will help those that they're there for. So affirming charity, compassion, and justice became the core theme. It was a core theme in our task force since about 2005. Um, We used it as an educational curriculum. I would come out and teach it where possible. But it's the key core of this book as well. And so the title, The Stones Would Shout, actually issued from Luke 19, uh, if these were silent, the stones would shout out, meaning that we're not called to just sit around and be silent about what's happening in the public sector. We're meant to speak out. Um, And what Jesus did in this case, it could be any other faith leader, was to go and serve those in need. And alongside that, we would often say our other faith partners, Muslim, Jewish, make it a duty to go serve these folks in need. And we as Christians often say it's a do this. I kind of snicker when I say it that way because it's in there, it's in the Bible, but we don't really treat it seriously in terms of a mandate of our faith. I happen to think it is a mandate of our faith when I say love God and love a neighbor as yourself. Sounds like a mandate to me. And yet all our other partners in faith believe that same phrase in their own way, in their own scripture, in their own teachings. So when I pull all this together, it's a message that came from one of my mentors, don't be silent. Um, It's a message that came from when we did the Stations of the Crosswalk in Seattle, the early years of the 2000s. Each station would finish with, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. For us Christians, tying it to the crucifixion. So I just think that all in all, it it is a faith movement. It doesn't have to be a faith movement when we care and love our neighbor. And so we can get along and we can practice this in a way through compassion that teaches us to listen. For me, that's always been, even as I served in congregations, the least practiced gift of grace. Well, let me ask you about that, because there's a, a cross-religious adage that precisely at the point where we are left speechless by an injustice specifically there, is where we must find our collective voice. And your text, I'd like to ask a question about that in terms of the the core values you're mentioning, you know, with regard to charity, companionship, and justice. And I imagine you meet a lot of people who want to exude that in their leadership. I imagine a number of our, our listeners are serving communities. They'd like to exude that in their particular leadership. They're listening to their communities. And yet perhaps maybe one of the subtexts or a subchapter of your book could be, you know, don't forget, you'll always face a headwind. I I sense that in your work, because no matter how willing people are or say they are, no matter how willing they are to listen or exude those qualities of charity, companionship, and justice, do you encounter people who are either also leaders obstructed by themselves, obstructed by their communities, where they know what the right thing to do is, theoretically, but the pragmatic steps to do that 
take something specific, a leap of faith, courage, new ways of seeing one's community. How do you deal with obstruction if indeed you experience it, as I'm describing? There are obstructions. Often it's us singly and together. And I don't want to simplify it, but I usually use the image of leave the building, get out of the building. Just get out, that leave you're it entirely. In. And I mean that figuratively and, and uh, literally. And by that, often uh, what leads us to, through the practice of something like companionship, is not so much just listening to each other, housed, privileged, whatever we are, even in all different levels of privilege, people being harmed even within our own congregational settings. But when we get out and we start listening on the street instead of bringing sort of monkey brain remedies to solve and truly listen and understand that we don't know what we think we know. In fact, we we know way too little about what's going on. And we don't tend to want to walk beside those that we meet either. We would rather point them somewhere, direct them somewhere, guide them somewhere, hand them off to somebody else. All those things may still happen but they happen with the, the uh, companionship of listening and walking with somebody whose idea this will be. It will be the homeless person's idea, willingness, courage in the face of change, all these things that, that, that will come up. And if they're not ready this week, we will say, okay, well, that's okay. I'll still be with you. I mean, it's one of the messages in Christendom about we have God, Emmanuel, with us. We lose sight of that, and we lose sight of it that it's true for others. I use a lot of time and space in this book. Um, I've titled chapters after those things. Originally, the book was going to be about space. In other words, occupying space and the use of space. And so I couldn't let go of that because that is critical to this. Our congregations occupy a space. It is a protected space. We call them sanctuaries. (laughs) I mean, we might as well lock the doors and, and throw away the key sometimes. But it's also about time. We want to always talk about, well, we used to do that. You know, we used to serve the homeless here, or we used to feed the homeless here until somebody came into the narthex with a knife, and then we stopped. We've all got those stories about our time and space, and now they've become shackles and history and and appreciating what we used to do and forgetting that we're here now, today, in this space now, today. So, I mean, I, I constantly want us to get back into that spot of understanding what our faith means to us and for ourselves as who we are in this moment. Maybe it's because uh, nostalgia makes communities feel safe, right? We can look back, as you just mentioned, at a former time, at a former space, we feel perhaps safer there because we know that the future has already unfolded. It's the past. We can look at it. We can walk around it. It has its own purpose that we might agree on. But displacement, as you note in in chapter two of this book, and I encourage the listener to go and pick this up. You can just Google it and go to Amazon and pick it up. The displacement itself, it seems to me, as a way of rupturing both time and space. Human beings get displaced. The residual trauma that impacts not just the individual, but the community, the impact that that has on on a local context, has a way of becoming corrosive. And perhaps that kind of corrosion, it undoes the very nostalgic return to the past. There's no going back to that. Displacement like this, as you're naming it, I think, the only way forward is with the courage you're naming to go into the future. So when you're standing in front of listeners, when you're using this text and working alongside David and other colleagues, as you've done for these years, what is it 
that you want them to take away from that first initial time together in terms of their own sense of empowerment in this work? Well, how personal this is. We're all going through this journey of displacement in our own lives, of loss, of mourning, of trauma. We are all traumatized. Um, I think sometimes that Pogo cartoon, we've met the enemy and it is us. Um, it, it should be, it is me. I am also often my worst enemy and my worst critic. And uh, I go to congregational worship and may still want to hide who I am, which is why for the last few years, the biggest word in my arsenal, and I do say arsenal like St. Paul would have brought it up, is uh, confession. I am constantly in need of confessing who I am, and I am always cautious about it. I am always afraid that someone will see who I really am. Oh, my God, this guy wrote a book? This guy wrote a book? <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff, or, or worse. And so I, I think we're all living that way. And it can even be an idea within a congregation that gets shouted down because, oh, well, we can't do that. And that person is silenced forever. Or it, it could be that we're out in the midst of real displacement where people have lost a home and they're in a tent. And then maybe they were in a different tent in a different location the day before. And then that got swept. Or as I refer to the displacement coalition, they were living in what seemed like a perfectly good house until the society that rules found a way to condemn it and then displace them into nothing. You know, that there are groups that are working on this outside the faith community about the reality of displacement in our society, how eminent domain or whatever else it might be is claiming homes and thus lives and businesses and jobs. The displacement is just all around us. And I understand why we don't want to face that. It's painful when we're part of it. I mean, we're watching a society during a pandemic see displacement rampant among us. You know, people who once had a job don't want it anymore for various reasons, but their life is upended. It's displaced. It's not what they used to know. And those are scary things. We don't go and get to name those even when we worship. The worship service would last three days, you know, and that would just be for 20 people, just because we carry all those things within us. And so, then we become just normal human beings with trauma, and we don't really all address trauma so well. I think there are many more tools out there than when I started. When I started this, we didn't talk about trauma. There have been more things written that I have read and been referred to. Some colleagues have written books about it um, that have helped inform me, so I keep learning about trauma and my own trauma. But one of the things is that every congregation ought to see that losing members is trauma. Having its neighborhood change around it is trauma. And when we are in that state of trauma, which is basically a kind of fearful, afraid state, we don't make the best choices. And so that's why I kind of want us, you know, the way the, the curriculum is established, it's sort of helping us wake up, number one, which has always been one of my favorite phrases, Antonio Machado had a poem that I include in this book, and he, he finishes it simply with those words. I forget if I'm going to not remember how it actually starts, um, but he goes, what was your word, Jesus? Love, forgiveness, affection, all your words were one word, wake up, which in the Spanish works not so well for the English. But that's endemic to almost everything I do. You know, wake up. Um, it's okay. It's safe to be awake especially when we don't try to just do all this unilaterally on our own as individuals. 
but we begin to build people with whom we can have trust and begin to be seen. And we can say things like, you know, it's really great that we have this wonderful sanctuary and that we have these wonderful classes and this wonderful worship. And even we can do it online and in person now. I said, but there's people out there who don't even have a home. I mean, that ought to just be a thunderbolt through any faith community. I think that's difficult for, for people individually to get their head around that, because to do that, you have to risk a kind of, for lack of a better word, a kind of existential vulnerability, right? You have to recognize that any one of us in the right conditions could find ourselves in a place of significant displacement, like as you and I spoke about last week. I know you have a number of of narratives or stories like this, but this young woman and I spoke and she uh, she was interviewed at one point a year ago, a little over a year ago. And, and as we were leaving the building, she pointed to the left up in Capitol Hill where I'm located in Seattle. And she said, um, you know, I used to live in those shrubs over there in that area. She pointed directly to it. Um, that was the place where she was forced night after night to be. That was the, the place she didn't call home, not even a shelter. It was just where she slept. And I think that's a reality a lot of people not only don't experience, but wouldn't want to imagine. It makes me, you know, your, your, your work here also on Praxis seems to be a place where the wakefulness you're talking about, the capacity to morally imagine oneself as an individual and as a community in Praxis, you have to get there where you see compassion and charity and justice interwoven and at work in maybe a word, another word we might use, solidarity. But you've got to somehow, communities have to punch through that, their own kind of selves as um, as obstructions, really, to that deeper wakefulness that's so important today. As a country, let me just think about where we are in this pandemic. How are we doing? How are the faith communities doing? How willing are we to be wakeful at a time where there's a lot of fear uh, that's corrosive in society today. And, and how is the pandemic impacting your work in, um, in assisting those who've been displaced? Well, we're pretty much still on the job. We wear masks, we get vaccinated, and we're out meeting with people. But what we also see is when I'm in meetings like regionally, East King or South King or North King or Seattle, and we talk about winter shelter, for example, last week. Well, it's a little hard to get it rolling this year by comparison to other years. This year, faith communities that in many cases are not using their building are not ready at the front of the line saying, we have space, you can use our building overnight for shelter. I know some will. We're trying to encourage the system to do it, that there are protocols to be safe, and it is far better for a smaller number of people to be indoors at your faith community than have them be outside in some of this weather. So people are right at that crossroads of, hmm, our building is mostly empty. It used to be mostly empty, even when we worshiped every Sunday. (laughs) Um, We didn't do it then, so we're not going to do it now. Or maybe the person who's standing on the corner holding the sign really isn't a scammer. Maybe they really are homeless. What are the odds? What if we took that risk that they're really homeless? And more than even just handing something out, what if we thought more about what else we could do? Is there a way that we can go out together? And I always advise going out with others, not doing this alone. 
because the number one word since I've started this work that I heard from those doing tent cities and other things has always been safety. The people who are homeless need to be safe and the people who go out need to be safe. There is trouble out there, but that's not the main thing. So I think the displacement issue is choosing to see it in terms of being awake, even on our way to church, even on our way to the market, wherever we're going, and to put another story in there. Like this person must be defective if they don't have a house. I mean, that's a big, that's a big one right now, that there must be something wrong with this person to not have a house. And we don't fill out the rest of the story, but we find some peace in knowing that I wouldn't be able to help them anyway. They're like Uncle Bob, you know, he's been drinking forever. We haven't been able to help him. I mean, everybody's got somebody like this in their family. So today on the way to work, I pull into a grocery store and there's a a young man. He's probably 35 years old. He doesn't look to me like he's been having a good time for uh, of it for a while. He looks like he's, he's been sleeping uh, rough. And he has a sign that he's holding up that says, uh, need gas. And this is just one example, right? We all have examples like this. I think our listener knows perhaps what to do. You've been doing this work for decades. So we're not being anecdotal. What do you tell people? Maybe it's an obvious question. Stop what you're doing and fill in the story. Or is it something else? Well, I'll be honest. I don't help everybody I come across. There'd be no way to either help, really help, or stay sane. A good example might be my wife and I were, well, A, an example, not good, where my wife and I were in Berkeley on vacation about three weeks ago, walking to the most expensive restaurant we were going to eat at in our stay. And a woman in a wheelchair and a man came up to us, both, it was really clearly homeless, just asking us for a dollar, you know, and very friendly and not confronting us. And without even thinking about it, which is actually the best way to do it, I only had $20 bills, so I gave them a $20 bill. And I said, this is both too much, not enough, and I'm just going to give this to you and trust that you'll use it like you need to use it. But I don't usually do that. Um, And in part, sometimes when I'm out and I have some of the materials that we've got available, like we have a parking guide that's on our webpage, and we have for people who are living in their vehicles, and we have other resources through the outreach of our team, sometimes we can make it more formal and, and get back to people. I think for my own sanity, there's simply too many people to help that I pass every day, and I try to formalize it through the work that we're doing. It's one of the things that I just kind of hold in my heart is I wish I could help all of you and I can't. And I do keep some amount of money. We've often used other things like gift cards or things like that. The problem with some of that is, in truth, that there's a market out there for things that we give out. People who survive find creative ways to use things to exchange. And so just learning some of this, we have to find the better ways to respond. And the bottom line is there is no perfect way to respond. Well, and that's it. And maybe no perfect person either. I mean, for those who are listening, you can be uh, from a particular faith community. You can be an agnostic or atheist. It's That's not a prerequisite to any of this. You can share values 
that uh, injustice needs to be identified, named, and responded to, the stones would shout. This text provides you a kind of arc or bridging in local communities to be able to think through how you would respond and do that work effectively together. And we know, as you well know, Bill, I'm, I'm really saying this more to the to the listener. For those of you who are in urban contexts, for instance, in this pandemic, you may see more of the displacement in your community that Bill is referring to. Uh, tangible signs that people are struggling, that they're not doing well. And so I think what you're inviting us to do is to not fill in the story by obstructing ourselves from really listening and seeing and asking ourselves where need is and how we can respond, how we can respond together. What would you say for those who would like to learn more about both your work, uh, how this text can be used, and how they can become, you know, more kind of inclined to be more wakeful in, in their respective community? What should they do next? Where would they go? Well, I didn't put study questions at the end of chapters because I think it's written in a simple enough language that you can argue or debate it each chapter as it is. And again, there's there's not a perfect way to exit everything in any of these pieces that I've put forward, except that you're moving toward kind of what you mentioned earlier, a praxis, which is a practice of technically reflection and action, but it could be prayer and action. And it's a cycle that repeats. So you go out and let's go to a soup kitchen and serve together today. We've never done it. Let's go ask these friends if we can join them. And you go. And then when you come back, you evaluate what that experience was like in real honest terms with each other until you begin to finally think, maybe we have a more important role here than we ever thought. Or maybe we see something that's not being handled, like the delivery of food to the soup kitchen, gleaning it from markets and other places because they've told you there that that's hard for them with their, with their own volunteers. I think sometimes we're a little bit hesitant because I've heard, as I've heard, and I use the example in the book, someone who I respect a lot at a little social event, just say that the problem is it's too big. Well, it is too big, but it's not too big for us to go out and start addressing people, whether it's one by one or step by step or you know stone by stone, whatever it's going to be. We can begin with some others to find a place to begin to change this and to actually start changing the lives of people, not just systems and settings and circumstances, but literally the lives of people who have every right to the same happiness that we do um, and the same uh, sense of safety that we do. And uh, when we do that, I think what we see, and I think we mentioned this before we even got on, what begins to fill us is a new way of understanding God's grace. Um, and this is across all traditions. We begin to remove obstacles and remove blinders when God's grace is operative within us and between us and among us. We, we begin to think, well, why did I think this was so hard before? Why was I so afraid of this? Well, we all need to be a little afraid of almost everything, but we don't have to be so afraid that we're paralyzed. And I think it's, uh, you know, I'm, I have a clip from John Oliver that's circulating. I should forward it to you. He did a piece recently on homelessness, 24 Minutes. He got it so perfect. You can post it on your podcast. He got it so perfect, and he used his own crass humor all the way through it, but he hit all the points about NIMBYs and about everything else that's going on for us who are housed, like we're the persecuted, we're the victims, we're the ones who everybody should worry about. Instead of the other way around, 
like, what are you people looking at? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, what, are you, what are you thinking? What roadblocks do you have in there? Why do you think God gave you all this abundance? Was it just to sit on it? Was it just to let it sit fallow and pay insurance on it? I mean, are all those things in the Bible somewhere? Did I miss that speech by Jesus or Mohammed or Moses? Or where is that? You know, and so we end up, we end up literally getting paralyzed by the fear of what we've been given. And, you know, for me, that's in, that ends up being like preaching time, but I have to kind of keep it at least modest enough so that I help it help people understand this is human dignity, respecting human dignity and helping to restore human dignity for people who in homelessness barely can hold on to any dignity whatsoever. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.